All right. Uh, it's a pleasure to be visiting with you guys from Calvary Church in Valparaiso today. Uh, my name is Timothy Carey, and I'll give you a brief intro on me. I was born and raised in Valparaiso, Indiana, so from the region, from the area. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, I moved out to Phoenix, Arizona, where I spent almost 10 years and met my wife. After we had some kids and settled down, we decided to come back and plant ourselves in Valpo. We moved back here in 2017 with our three children and began attending Calvary. Earlier this year, I began a position there working in discipleship and spiritual growth ministry, and I also founded in 2018 a, a teaching ministry called Faithfully Radical Ministries that basically puts out content like podcasts, blogs, things like that, gets discipleship groups together, uh, men's groups together, and getting discipleship and Christ-centered growth going in Northwest Indiana. Well, I must say, it is a great joy to be here with you today to share in your worship service. As Pastor Pierre pointed out a couple weeks ago, it, being in this setting can really make you feel and experience how much we're truly, uh, truly a local body a local congregation is part of a larger body. We're part of a group of Christians that spans the globe, and it's wonderful to be able to sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ, to give glory to Christ, and to fellowship together. I want to start pretty much by diving right in. Today we're going to be digging into Psalm 2 in its entirety, and what we're going to be looking at is Jesus as the Son of God, and Jesus as the anointed King over our lives. Now, as I began to prepare this sermon, I was reminded of one of the first times I got to teach over the Bible. Uh, a team from Calvary was going down to Bethesda Outreach in South Africa. I believe you guys are familiar with it. And as we prepped for the trip, a dear brother of mine named Chris, who's with us today, uh, we were tasked with teaching a group of kids. And so with little to no experience and no experience teaching, we decided that we were going to teach a group of kids over Jesus being fully God and fully man. Very easy to do with a group of kids under 10. After weeks of preparation, the time had really finally come for us to get in front of these kids and teach them. It was a group of probably about 60 kids, and we made our way through, I forget, about a 45-minute lesson. And then as we finished up, I asked, what did you guys learn today? Did you learn anything today? And I waited patiently. A beautiful, expectant pause waiting for them to respond to affirm us, to tell us we did a good job. And as we waited, suddenly a voice, one voice in unison, all 60 kids together screamed back at us, no. A little taken aback, I tried to compose myself, and I thought, oh boy. So I said, you didn't learn anything, nothing at all, none of these points. Again, one voice, they yell back, no. And so that's when I decided I wanted to teach and preach in front of people for the rest of my life. No, I'm kidding. But I do pray that the Lord will be with us today. That, we can, that he can reveal his truth to us, and that we can dig into Psalm 2 together to see why Jesus is Lord and King over our lives. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, I thank you so much for Evergreen Baptist Church. I pray that you be with them as they continue their search for a new lead pastor. Please bring in your providence the right man to faithfully and sacrificially shepherd the flock here. Hold tightly to these people and keep them as a family and help them gracefully and peacefully transition at this time. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and the opportunity to share your word with them. I pray that you hide me behind your cross and that your Holy Spirit would work so that I may not say words that are mine or opinions that are mine, but that I would say your words and your truths. 
Thank you for the great gift and sacrifice of your son, through whom we have been redeemed into relationship with you to be adopted as heirs. And it is in his holy name we pray. Amen. To start off, we're going to be reading Psalm 2 in its entirety. If you could open your Bibles, we will read the word of God together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. For and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all that take refuge in him. The Psalms are a beautiful and unique book. One I know you guys have gotten to dive into quite a bit recently. And one that was called a mini, a mini Bible by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. The Psalms are there to help us, to direct us, to show us in almost concentrated form the true nature of God and the true nature of of man. And Psalm 2's place in this book is very unique in and of itself. First, Psalm 2 actually joins with Psalm 1 in creating an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. These Psalms are generally considered to have originally been one Psalm in the original writing. A strong indicator of this is the use of a literary device called inclusio, which is really just a $4 word for saying inclusion. The first verse of Psalm 1 is, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And we see that framed out with the final line of Psalm 2, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now these dual forms of blessing form the meat of the rest of these two psalms. And these two psalms together describe our duty and our Savior. The psalm has no set title or author, but scripture reveals later on in the New Testament that the author was King David himself. Acts 4.25 says, Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This psalm is also known as a royal psalm. There's different designations for the different psalms in our book. And we see that this is designated as a royal psalm because it deals with kingship. Royal psalms deal with the relationship between God and king. And here in Psalm 2, we have a very special circumstance. Most royal or kingship psalms deal with either human or divine kingship. And here we see the author very masterfully integrating both. We see the contrast between the divine king, Jesus, and his human counterpart, David. And then they are contrasted with the hostile kings of the earth. And while we can see that much of this can be applied to David, we also see other aspects in this, in this passage that definitely cannot be. In verse 7, we see the Lord say, you are my son. In verse 8, he says that he will make the ends of the earth his possession. None of these are indicative of the kingdom of David, 
but they are indicative of the greater kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now let's pick apart Psalm 2 a bit. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This opens with a timeless question. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do they now? Why did they in the time of David? Why have they since the fall? Well, we see it a little bit more clearly here in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The nations, the people, the rulers, all of this language is meant to symbolize all of creation. They have set themselves against the Lord. They do not want to live by his wisdom. They do not want to live by his word. We don't see this anymore today, do we? Of course we do. People worship anything they want. Speakers, social media influencers, celebrities. People make their own definitions of God, of sex, of spirituality, and of religion. They do not see the timeless truth of God. The objective truth that can never be changed. The world is set against God and against his rule, against his plan. They foolishly and feebly believe that they can stand against a holy and almighty God. I know a bit about this. For a large portion of my life, I considered myself an atheist, an unbeliever entirely. Especially into early adulthood, I personally raged against God. For so long, after being redeemed back to the Lord, I asked myself, why? Why didn't I get it? Why didn't I recognize the obviousness of God in his creation? Well, the truth is, for everyone, I didn't want to submit. Even though all of creation testifies to his glory and his power, I didn't want to recognize it. My heart was rock solid and totally turned away from God until he, through the power of his Holy Spirit, regenerated me and brought me back to him. Then the cross of Christ became clear. And there is another important realization that we must grapple with here. Until we are born again, until the Holy Spirit has gripped our hearts and revealed the sweet truth of Jesus Christ to us, we are the raging nations. Until we turn our hearts toward the Savior, Jesus Christ, we identify with the nations here in this passage. But even as born-again believers, we know it doesn't go away. It's not easy. We are constantly and repeatedly tempted by the things of this world. The evil one works overtime to try to tempt us, to cause us to slip, and to undermine or demean the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives. But this is the beauty for us as believers, as we got to beautifully sing in worship this morning. Those who follow Christ are covered by his righteousness. This is an important distinction between those who follow Christ and those who continue to rage with the nations. The one who follows Christ has his sins covered in righteousness, but the one who rebels will endure God's wrath. Judges 17 verse 6 states clearly what we see in the world throughout time 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But is this a wise move? Is this smart for us to do as created beings that hinge on a creator? No. God created and upholds all through his son, Jesus Christ. Rebelling against him is not true freedom. Is the fish freed from the water as the hook reels him up? Is the bird freed from the air as his wings are clipped? Were Adam and Eve freed when they trusted Satan's voice over God's? No. There is no freedom. There is no power for those that turn away from God. Only slavery, only imprisonment, and a life set apart from the ultimate life giver. We see another parallel here as we encounter our text between Psalms 1 and Psalm 2. In the Legacy Standard Bible, we see verse 1 translated this way. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? They switch out plot for meditate. And this isn't just an arbitrary translation. The Hebrew, the original Hebrew for plot, is the same word for meditate. And we find that in Psalm 1 verse 2 as well. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So we see this very real, stark contrast here between Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 is outlining what the blessed man is like, the one who meditates on God's word day and night. But what do we see about the peoples here in Psalm 2? They meditate on vain things, on things set against the Lord, on ways that they do not have to obey him. They do not simply want to ignore God. They want to overthrow God. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Let us break the bonds with which God guides us. Let us cast them away so that we don't have to submit to the eternal kingdom. The world looks at the divine creator and says, let's cast him away to just do it ourselves. They are rebelling against the Lord and as we saw in our passage, against his anointed. But who is the Lord's anointed? What are we talking about here? Well, there's two ways to observe the psalm. We have an historical and an eternal way to look at this. David was an anointed king by God, the author of this very psalm. We can read about in scripture and imagine the great ways and conflicts that he encountered during his kingdom. But this psalm also has far more further reaching effects. The peoples here are rebelling against God and the one he set in place from the beginning of time, King Jesus. Jesus is the anointed king brought out from the line of David. While David was a great king appointed by God, Jesus is the better king. Beyond that, Jesus is the best king. He is the fulfillment of all of scripture and most certainly the point of this psalm that we're looking at this morning. John Calvin says that David was made king not so much for his own sake, but as to be a type of the Redeemer. Not of a Redeemer, of the Redeemer. David was a type that Christ fulfills. Now, on this end of history, since Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the nations aren't now praising and glorifying God. They still stand against this should seem like a real problem. If Christ came, 
completed his work and went again, shouldn't the nations be restrained? Shouldn't God be worried that the nations haven't submitted? Well, let us see how the Lord responds. And the response is this. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Is the Lord worried? Is the Lord quaking in heaven, wondering how all of this is possibly going to turn out? No. No. Our Lord laughs. H.B. Charles Jr. says this about this specific verse. He says, human rebellion is divine comedy. Rebellion is futile. And not only futile, but absolutely and utterly ridiculous. The divine creator of all things and the world's plan is simply to cut him out? To overthrow him? Well, the Lord laughs at that. And not only that, but the Lord holds them in derision. They are mocked. Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. No, the Lord isn't worried. He isn't sitting in heaven shaking in his boots. He's not sitting up on the throne planning, making plans B, C, or D. The plan was set before the foundations of the earth. The plan is the Lord's. This is plan A. It always has been and it always will be. The Lord is the Lord, our great Yahweh. But why? What is this plan and how does it succeed? Well, we see it more clearly when we consider verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. His wrath will be poured out. He will speak to those who rebel within his wrath. And we live in an age and a time where because of his grace and mercy, God withholds his wrath until the time of judgment. But we still see today, although he is reserving final judgment, the Lord still reveals his wrath today by turning people over to their sinful desires. As our hearts stay turned away from God, he allows them to harden towards him like Pharaoh of old. But for those who follow Christ, for those who are set in the way, that time of judgment has come. It's a beautiful truth for us. God poured out his wrath on the king. The holy king. The one king. The anointed king with a capital A. And for those that follow this king, for those that recognize this king as their Lord and Savior, that wrath was taken for us. Jesus is that king. Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. And that is where our hope must always and ultimately lie. We see off this verse that the battle is finished. The war is won, even though one side has not realized it yet. But the king has already ensured his victory. It was ensured since the creation of all. There was never the slightest chance of plan A failing. The king is set, the war is won. And now we get to hear the Lord's anointed one speak. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. That first part, I will tell of the decree. The Messiah 
is now speaking in response. He has seen how the world that he has created rebelled, and he has an answer. Next he says, the Lord said to me. This is what great preacher Matthew Henry called an eternal decree between the Father and the Son. Again, this was not a change in plan. This was not the Father responding to a sinful and fallen world by sending the Son. This was a decree from the very beginning of time. John 10, 18 spells it out a little clearer for us. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We finish verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was not adopted into the family as we were when we became believers. Nothing else has a qualification that even comes close. He was begotten, begotten by the Father. Jesus is the same essence of the Father, the same nature as the Father, and he is Lord over all. This is a common passage cited in the New Testament, and we find it multiple times, especially surrounding the baptism by John. Luke 3.22 says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. And then we see the writer of Hebrews connecting this verse with Jesus being the ultimate, greater than any created being. Hebrews 1.5 For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. God has said this to no one else but our great king. Jesus does not have an equal. He does not have a contemporary. He is the physical representation of God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity who willingly and voluntarily descended from heaven to live a perfect life, to be sinless, and to sacrifice himself on the cross for every tribe and every tongue. There is no one who can even compare to him. No earthly or heavenly being even comes close all this, all that was created flows through him, from him, and for him. He is eternal and everlasting, more powerful and greater than any earthly king or ruler, or nation, or person, or power. There's nothing that can stand against. And we see in verses 8 and 9 in our passage, we finally get to see what the Father has set the Son on the throne for. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord has made the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He rules all and he sees all. Daniel 7 says it like this, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus' dominion is an everlasting dominion, not one that blows with the wind, not one that will pass away, but one that lasts forever. And as citizens of that kingdom, we can rely and stand firm on those promises. Our king isn't an elected official who lasts a few years 
or changes his mind. He's not a leader who blows with the wind or takes the bribe. No, Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We rely on our king because he is a great king, because he is the greatest king. His kingdom stands firm, and that is our king. That is who we follow, that is who rules us, and that is who cares for us. But what of those who do not submit? Who do not recognize Christ's kingship? Who continue on this path of rebellion until the very end? What happens to them if they stay on this path and enter the wide gate? Psalm 2.9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. They cannot stand. Compared to his iron, they are like flimsy pieces of clay. They may rage and they may plot and they may take counsel together, but it's pointless. Whether they know it yet or not, a day will come when Christ will return and there is an end to this story. We see it more clearly spelled out in Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 27, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Revelation 12, verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one, is, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And we see finally in Revelation 19:15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. The language here shows that not all will voluntarily receive his yoke. Some will rebel. And though it is a beautiful picture when we see people willingly run to the cross and run to Christ, there is a very important truth we must understand here. Jesus rules over the just and the unjust alike. And while many will be rebellious, while many will turn away, all the way until the end, they can never thwart his plan. Their will and their planning could never turn away God's plan. The time will come when they submit. But that's the beauty here. This is the beauty that comes when you run to Jesus Christ because he gives you the opportunity to come to him, to cry out to the Lord and repent and recognize Christ Jesus as our great redeemer and our great savior. Finally, we see getting to the end. The author addresses the world. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11. Now therefore, now what? Is basically what he's saying. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Although God can and does have the power to destroy those who don't follow him or follow his plan, he does not take pleasure in it. He does not bring, it does not bring him joy to see those lost, striving in the world to find their own way, hoping and planning on vain things that will never bring your salvation, that will never bring hope. It doesn't bring him joy to see them turned away from true love, from true salvation. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We see in our passage, serve the Lord with fear. 
Understanding the Lord Jesus, his authority, his eternality, all starts with this fear of the Lord we see in verse 11 and in verse 7 in Proverbs. Now, this isn't a terror-inducing fear. Not for those who follow Christ. It isn't trying to say or imply that you must now live your life walking around on eggshells, worrying about everything and everyone because you're afraid of screwing up and bringing down God's wrath. No, not at all. This is an awe-inspiring fear. A reverence for the one who created you. No, it's not meant to bring terror. It's meant as a recognition of the awesome of the all-powerful, of the all-knowing, of the all-holding, of the ultimate. The one who holds us and and sustains us and has redeemed us back to himself. We must recognize this. We must see Christ as our Lord. Our teaching pastor at Calvary, Josh Reasoner, said it this way a few weeks ago. You cannot have Jesus as Savior if you do not have Jesus as your Lord. This is the fear here, recognizing him who has the authority over you, who created you, who sustains you every second of every day, who set forth this very plan for your salvation, for my salvation. Our great king who has poured out his grace and mercy to all those who follow him. This is true joy. This is true service. We see at the end of verse 11, rejoice with trembling. This is such a succinct description and definition of worship. We must recognize who the Lord is and rejoice over it. Praise and worship him, trembling at the recognition of who he is and what that means for your life. You have been redeemed, and not because of anything that any of us could do, but because of the great king we have enthroned in heaven who upholds us. And that takes us to the final verse. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It was common for those in ancient history who lost wars to kiss the hand or the cheek of the new ruler, to show submission. Here we see that great duty required of us all. To submit to the Son and to his rule. We must kiss the Son, submit to him, and recognize his authority over our lives. Not because our recognition gives him authority, but because he is the one with the authority. He is the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. For those in him and with him and serving him, his wrath is quickly kindled. For it is the wrath that, the God, that God the Father poured out on God the Son for your sake, for my sake, and for the sake of every believer throughout history. The wrath the Son took willingly because of his great love for his creation. The punishment, torment, pain, and death on the cross all willingly taken to redeem us to the Father. For us, to be called heirs with Jesus Christ. God does not see us for our own good works. God does not see us for our deepest and darkest sins. But when you run to Jesus, he sees us how he sees the Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our stead. 
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. That is our hope in this fallen world that constantly rebels against the great king. That he died for us so that we can be with him. And the last verse, the last part of this verse. Blessed are those that take refuge in him. A refuge. A place or person that provides shelter from danger. That keeps us safe. That is who Jesus is. He is our refuge. He provides greater protection than anything else in the universe can. No human or shelter can care for you, love you, or protect you like Jesus Christ can. Not your spouse, not your parents, not your boss, not your job, not your sports team, not your political party. Nothing can provide the security and life that can be found in the Savior. And this is our great hope. This is the good news that is the gospel for us today. That no matter what you've done in the past, no matter the ways you've rebelled or you've raged, you're safe to be real and honest with Jesus. To admit and repent because he loves you. He was appointed king to redeem you. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 say, In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Our heavenly king is not a backup plan. He's not a second thought. He was there at creation, making everything around us. Nothing was made outside of him. He, Jesus Christ, is the very word that we are studying this morning. All of this. History, creation, redemption, salvation. It all hangs on Jesus Christ. Not men, not those of the world who continue to rebel at every turn, nor does it hang upon us as followers of Jesus Christ. No, all of creation hangs on Christ alone. And the work he has done for you, through you, and for the glory of the Father in heaven. Mark 16, 19 says this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Our Lord Jesus is not in heaven running around, fretting about the state of the world. He is sitting on his heavenly throne. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is sitting because the work is complete. That is our hope. That is our Savior and this was his plan from all of time, to give us refuge in him. Can I ask you a question? Do we believe this this morning? Do we recognize with our hearts and with our minds that Jesus Christ is our refuge, the one whom we are safest with? The one who loves us? Because I tell you, this is Christ's wonderful invitation to you this morning. Would you accept him as your Lord and Savior if you haven't? He loves us. He desires a relationship with us. And he desires to bless those who take refuge in him as heirs with eternal life with the Father. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, enthroned above, we give you thanks today. 
We come with open and willing hearts to serve you, to honor you, and to glorify you. I thank you for your word that you have faithfully provided to us that reveals these beautiful truths to us about your son. Please help us, equip us, and enable us to serve the king, to submit our lives to a great and mighty and powerful God so that we may walk on the right path through the narrow gate, that we might enjoy the rich and abundant blessings and joys you have prepared and planned for your people. Father, as I close, I want to once again lift up Evergreen Church. Bless them during this interim season, and I pray you bring them a strong and faithful shepherd. Lord, protect your church from the evil one and bring flourishing to this place. Help us all to rest in your promises, fulfilled in Jesus Christ and made for us. It is in the great Savior's Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.